are many examples of bad proof texts that people use from the New Testament. Have you ever sung, lift Jesus higher? He said, if I be lifted up? Well, it's biblical to exalt the Lord, to lift him up in praise. There are passages about that. But when you're saying, lift Jesus higher, he said, if I be lifted up, you're referring to a particular passage. What does this passage mean? The passage is 12.32 of, of John. Uh, if you read it in context with the next verse that follows, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw everyone to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So when you're singing that, what you're singing is, Crucify him! Crucify him! Happily, God knows our hearts. But you'd think that songwriters would at least look up a verse in context before writing a song that millions of people might sing. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you are God's temple? Well, some people have used this to say, don't smoke. Well, I agree you shouldn't smoke. In fact, I'm allergic to smoke. But, I mean, I don't think the Bible says smoking will send you to hell. It just implies, well, the Bible doesn't talk about smoking, but um, I don't think it'll send you to hell. It just may get you wherever you're going faster. But the context of this in 1 Corinthians 3 is Christian celebrity cults. Some of you follow Paul. Some of you follow Apollos. But the issue isn't us, Paul and Apollos. The issue is you, God's church. All of our works will be tested by fire, the works of Apollos, the works of, of Paul. Only what's built on Christ's foundation will last. You, the church, built on God's temple, are the fruit of our labors. That's the point in the context. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, has sometimes been quoted out of context, as saying, well, you know, certain spiritual gifts have passed away. They're no longer for today. <clears throat> Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Some say, well, the New Testament's perfect, and so that's what it's talking about. The Corinthians probably would not have understood what a New Testament was, <clears throat> and Paul probably didn't tell them anything about that. I mean, it's never explained in the New Testament. Okay, here the canon will end. That's something we figured out afterwards. But <clears throat> what does it mean knowledge is past? I mean, given the way knowledge is used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, um, knowledge refers to knowledge of God, knowledge of, about God, knowledge of the things of God, and so on. If knowledge is past, how would we know? But most significant, look at the context. 13.12 Now we see just a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I'm fully known. I won't need that kind of knowledge anymore because I'll have full knowledge because I'll see him face to face. That's not just reading the New Testament. That's the fullness of revelation at Christ's return. And it's more respectful to the New Testament, actually, to take it for what it means in its context. Well, some people quote Philippians 4.13 out of context. I can do everything through the one who gives me strength. And uh, this is a real example. A Christian football player at a Christian college came to a professor and said, I can't understand why my team doesn't always win because the Bible says you can do all things through Christ. Well, if you look at the context, Paul says, I've learned to be content in, in whatever situation I'm in. I know what it is to be needy. I know what it is to have a lot I've, I've, uh, or enough. 
I've, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I can do anything through him that gives me strength. What that suggests is that you can take it even when you lose your football game. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, what does it mean to be fire baptized, baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, there was a church called the Fire Baptized Holiness Church that said, uh, you know, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you get baptized in fire. It's, a, it's another stage after it. And the original founder of it went on to talk about being baptized in oxidite and lidite and so on, at which point the church threw him out because he was really off the deep end. But, of course, we affirm what people mean when they, when they talk about fire baptized, if they're talking about holiness. We affirm it's important to be holy. But what does it mean in this passage, really? Fire symbolizes different things in different passages. Purification, testing, God's message shut up within one's bones in Jeremiah. Most often it symbolizes judgment. What does it mean in this context? Well, think of whom John is addressing. Uh, we're we're going to look at it in its Matthean context, although you get the same thing from Luke. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, uh, where he was baptizing, he said to them, You offspring of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Are these friends of his? Is he, is he claiming that these are godly people? And what does he mean when he says, You offspring of vipers? There was actually a belief, often in the ancient world, that the way that baby vipers were hatched, you know, reptiles lay eggs, but in this case, they thought that the, the eggs hatched inside the mother, and the, the baby vipers chewed their way through their mother's womb killing their mother in the process. So when people were compared to vipers, and especially children of vipers, it was like saying parent murderers, morally reprehensible people. So John says, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Is this happy fire or sad fire? Do you want to be cast into the fire? Probably not. This is a fire of judgment to which it refers. That's verse 10. Now verse 12, which is immediately after the verse about being baptized in fire, um, says that his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn, but the chaff, that's the leftover stuff that you can't eat, the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Now, chaff was often used in the Old Testament as a symbol for something that was going to face judgment, be burned. Chaff normally burned up quickly. It wasn't even good fuel. But this chaff burns with unquenchable fire. It's going to burn forever. Well, what kind of fire is that? Is this happy fire or sad fire? I don't think we want to be burned with the fire of verse 10. We don't want to be burned with the fire of verse 12. Probably, therefore, we don't want to be burned with the fire of verse 11 either, where it talks about being baptized in fire. Do all the Pharisees repent? Do all of them get the Holy Spirit? What does fire represent in this context? Probably we don't want to be fire baptized the way it means in this context. He's speaking to a group of them. He uses the plural form of you. You all. He says, you all are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Some of them get the Holy Spirit, some of them get the fire, some are gathered like wheat into the barn, 
Some are burned up like chaff. Some are going to bear good fruit. Others are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. I'll give some more examples in the next lesson. <laughs>